We're starting a, another interview slot, and we're going to do a bit like Parkinson's. We're going to have lots of people up on the stage by the end, and eventually, Aaron might have you sitting right down the end there. But to start off initially, I'd really just like to welcome Arianna Walker, who's Chief Executive of Mercy Ministries UK. Spontaneous applause, wonderful. So, Ari, just going to ask you a little bit of a question. Tell us some things about you, your story, your family. How did you end up here in, in Bradford on this stage today? How long have you got? <laughs> really, really short version of that would be um, I've actually lived in Bradford for 20 odd years now. Um, it's, I'm part of this church, have been part of this church for a length of time. Uh, and in this church, I bumped into what has now become um, my call, really. I know this is what I'm meant to do. And Mercy Ministries runs residential homes for young women with eating disorders, self-harm, depression. Um, and it was just as serving in this church and being part of this church that I found out about Mercy. And I've got the privilege of being part of running that here in the UK on behalf of Nancy Alcon, who's the president and founder of Mercy. So... I'm married, I've got two children who are off bike riding, I think, this afternoon. So. <laughs> and Nancy has a great story about how and why she set up Mercy Ministries and what she was doing. I think she was working in a women's prison, wasn't she, initially? And she wanted to set up Mercy Ministries as something that was, was very different, these three principles that she keeps talking about. Could you maybe tell us something of Nancy's story? Yeah, Nancy Alcorn um, comes from Tennessee, and she had worked for a good eight to ten years in, uh, for the government and in a similar kind of way as social services would be over here. She worked in um, a, a female correctional facility, I think they call it, right. something like that. Sounds <laughs> dreadful. Uh, and then she also worked in child protection. And, and I think in that, in that time she just saw the cycle of destruction. She saw that the government was, was throwing everything it could, every resource, every dollar it had, into dysfunctional people only for them to continue in the cycle and and God gave her a revelation that in Isaiah 61 it talks about healing the brokenhearted and setting the captives free and that that mandate was given to the church and not to the governments of this world and so she felt a real call from God to open a home for young women that would address that very issue those issues mentioned in Isaiah 61 but from a Christ-centered approach and that the root causes of the life-controlling issues these girls suffer from would be dealt with um, in, in a six-month program. And so that was 25 years ago. Uh, we now have homes, three homes in America, home in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Peru, and one in the UK. So I think it works. <laughs> uh, tell us something of sort of Nancy's relationship, where the, where the money comes from. How does she do that? What does she do with the money? Well, it's really interesting. When, when um, God gave her the vision for Mercy Ministries, he gave her three foundational principles uh, that, that we, we stick to even in this country and, and right across the world. And those principles are, one, don't charge any girl for any part of the service that we provide. And that's so that she knows that... Um, it's, we don't make money off of her problems. You know, we're not in it for the money. We're here to express God's heart towards her. So we don't charge for what we do. Second is give 10% away 
of everything that comes in that's unrestricted. Again, we do that too. And the third thing is don't take government funding or any funding actually that's got strings attached to it that will make you have to compromise the message of Christ. Um, it's the craziest business plan in the world, really. You, you're not going to charge anybody. You're not going to take any money from people that make you want to change it. And you're going to give 10% away. Only God can come up with something like that um, and then expand it across the world. And so we rely absolutely completely on the donations of individuals, of churches, of Christian businesses, of trust funds. And without those people um, giving 5, 10, 15 pound a month, Mercy Ministries would not exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it costs £25,000 a month to run one home. Um, so yeah. It's been my great privilege, I suppose, over the last two or three years to sort of see, um, I think I attacked the rhododendron hedge was my contribution to the Mercy Ministry home and, um, you know, move some stones around. And we, we've seen from the vision initially birthed here in, in Bradford to the home being opened a year or two ago and now... You know, thinking about extending the number of um, young girls that you can take. Tell us a very brief story of Mercy Ministries UK. Um, Mercy Ministries UK has now been operating for three years. And in that three years, we've seen nearly 30 girls um, graduate the program, which is awesome. And I think about 28 of them are going really strong. The other two are still struggling a little and we're helping them. Um, but it's an, it's an incredible um, statistic, really. Uh, in terms of success rates. Uh, we've, uh, we started with a home that was given to us by a Christian trust fund and they leased to us for £5 a year. I pay it myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and really, it's, it's just been a God journey because without God, something like this doesn't just happen. Mm-hmm. And it's taken patience and hard work and prayer and commitment and business plans and fundraising strategies. Uh, but it exists and it's making a difference in people's lives. For me personally, uh, it's, really, it's really special because my sister, Debbie, who's 10 years younger than me, she um, graduated the program in Nashville. Most girls who come to Mercy Ministries, by the way, are from Christian backgrounds. In fact, I think all of them are, are to date from in our country, certainly. And my, my own sister, like me, brought up in a Christian home. But at 15, um, well, at 12, actually, something went wrong in her life. She met a man. She was abused by him for three years. And at 15, she came to live with me. Um, and in that three years, I'd heard about, heard about Mercy. I gave her a book, Mercy Moves Mountains, which we actually sell at the back there. And every chapter is a girl's story. And she read the book, and, and after 18 months, she found herself on an aeroplane going to Nashville, the first girl from this country, in fact, the first girl from outside of America, to ever be accepted onto the program. And that was eight years ago. And she graduated, she's got married, she is pregnant with her first baby, and she runs the home in Bradford. Mm. And only God can do that. Yep. And that's transformation versus treatment. You know, the world offers treatment. It offers uh, ways to address the symptoms of people's problems. But God is in the business of transformation. He is in the business of connecting with people on a heart level. And he will change them from the inside out. And that's what we find and see at Mercy every day. Great. And I think... I think you've got a a DVD clip that we're going to watch just two or three minutes long just about the work of Mercy. So thanks, Robin.
Caught in a cycle of hopelessness and anger, uh, despair. I had no hope, no future, no peace, no truth. Um, there was just pain and shame. Lies tormented my mind constantly. The root cause of my pain were not being dealt with, and I desperately needed help. Self harm was a comfort to me at a time when all I knew was fear and mistrust. I trusted self harm and felt like I could rely on it. It began to consume my day. I started to think of new ways that I could hurt myself because I felt fat, ugly, and stupid. I hated life and I wanted to die. For most of my life, I lived in almost constant fear. I had eating disorders. Self-harmed on and off, and attempted suicide more than once. I had long periods of silence, struggled with the voice in my head, and was unable to control recurring thoughts and images. I've spent so much of my life trying to fix everything, including myself. But the more I tried, the more out of control everything got. Till eventually, I gave up trying. I allowed the depression and addictions that were controlling my life to overtake me. Mercy Ministries helped me deal with the root causes of my issues. They didn't medicate the symptoms, they didn't treat the behaviour. What Mercy Ministries did was teach me... There's a few minutes more of that DVD that I'm, we might want to show at the end. But, um, Ari, one home in, in Bradford, okay, there's 20 across the world, and, you know, I hope there's more in, in the UK fairly soon, but one home, 30 girls. What else can we do? I know Mercy, Mercy, Mercy Ministries are doing some stuff with their Empower program. I'd love to, you to tell us a bit about that. And also, how can we as a Christian community help the young people of tomorrow with their, their emotional and mental health? Yeah, I, um, in, in the first year of us opening, I spent a lot of time traveling across the country. Manning stands just like the one at the back there. And we were having pastors and church leaders and women's ministry leaders and youth leaders coming up and saying, you know, we've, we've got a girl in our youth group. We, we're reaching out as a church into our community and people are getting saved, which is great. And then suddenly we find out that, that they've been abused and they're cutting themselves or they've got an eating disorder and we don't know what to do. We've prayed for them. They've done the Bible study. They've done Alpha, but they've still got their issues. What do we do now? And so I, I just heard this over and over again. And then I just felt God say to me, don't keep what you have inside the four walls of Mercy Ministries. We, can, we say no to so many people. If you're not 18 to 28 and female, you've got no chance of coming to Mercy. 
Yet the church doesn't get to say no to anyone. The church's doors are wide open and anybody and everybody comes in. And yet it's the church that are amongst the least equipped and least able in the terms of their resources to be able to support people who are disenfranchised. So I just felt like we needed to do something to equip the church. And so we came up with something called Empower. And they're training days that we, we host some in, in Oxenhope at HQ, Mercy HQ. And sometimes churches will host us across the country. And we spend all day teaching on eating disorders, on self-harm, and on general keys of how to support broken people. Because it's very specific. And many, much of what we teach, actually, um, I believe Rev, Reverend Will van der Hart taught this morning. And it, it's absolute truth of, of the wisdom in, past, in, in caring pastorally for people with these kinds of issues. Um, and so we do the same thing, and, and it's, it's had a great success, and I know that we're helping shape and teach and equip church leaders to be better able to support women and, and people generally in their own communities so that, from my point of view, if one girl doesn't have to come to Mercy because she's been supported locally in her church, then that's great. Because we have a waiting list. And our heart is to come alongside the church and be part of what the church can offer its congregation. So that we can be a specialist place for churches to send their girls to. Um, Not out of sight, out of mind. Send them off to this place and then they come back and they're fine. That's not what we seek to do. We seek to be part of what the church offers so that that girl still stays that church's girl. She comes mm. and stays with us for six months. We help her with some of the deep issues she's got, but she slots straight back in to the pastoral care given in her local environment. And, and I believe that is the way forward. Mm. You know, we, the church is God's answer to the world's problems. And, and we, as an organization, are here to support that, not to do something off on our own, but to support the church's response yep. to these issues. Yep. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And just to sort of um, just to sort of give people a, a taste of this time next year, we're hoping to host a, a big conference looking particularly at the mental health of tomorrow's church, about eating disorders, about self harm. What are we doing with the people in the youth groups um, who are accessing suicide websites? All these kind of things. So that's going to be a big topic for us, hopefully in around twelve months' time. And Mercy are certainly going to be on the speakers list. So let's give Ari a big round of applause. Great. If I could just invite um, Stephen Matthew to come up and join me. Stephen, come and grab a seat. Thanks, Rob. So, Stephen, um, really excited to have Stephen here. Stephen is actually the associate pastor, associate senior pastor. I forget the exact title, but anyway. Anything like he's, that. He's the number two guy here at Abundant Life, and um, really excited to, to have Stephen. So, first of all, just tell us a little bit about Stephen, about your, yourself, who are you, what's your job, who your family, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I'm Steve Matthew. I've been part of the church here ever since it started back in 1975. So that's a long time. I seem to have had about three or four lives in between where God's had me doing different things. Uh, but it's been a joy to see the church evolve and grow to where it is today. Probably the last sort of 12, 13 years since we came back to Bradford in 96 um, and we reinvented the church has been the, the most strategic, significant time and when our paths have crossed and uh, we've done what we've done in terms of becoming an outreach centre much more as a church mm-hmm. um, but I'm married I've got four children then I'm all married I've got four grandchildren well three and one on the way so wonderful seen a bit of life busy man <laughs> yeah I'm principal of the leadership academy here and I'm associate pastor 
and general factotum. Great. <laughs> and so, so 25 years, wow. Pastor for 25 years, you must have picked up a lot. And you, I know you like to read and, and think yep. a lot. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey and your understanding of, of how mental health and spiritual development relate. I would say my journey has been one from total ignorance, absolute ignorance to where I am now, which is still not anywhere near you, Rob. But I think it's fair to say many guys who came into ministry at the same time as I did, our training did not in any way include any mention of mental health. It was kind of just this weird thing on the fringe and you just trusted it wouldn't come into your world. Um, I think I had this fear of it. I was intimidated by it because of lack of training and understanding. But you don't have to be long in the pastoral role for it to walk through your office door. And you have to immediately begin to decide, do I just treat this as a spiritual issue or not? Is there a medical, is there a clinical? Where does it all fit? And early on I was raised on the writings of an uh, an author, some of you will know called Jay Adams, um, who has quite a strong view that there's no such thing as mental illness, but all there is is sin. And that, that clouded or coloured my thinking at that time, took me on a certain journey. Um, and it was quite a, it took a lot of involvement with specific cases, talking to guys like yourself and others over the years who've expanded my thinking, getting some training to understand that there will always be times in my journey where as a pastor, I run out of competency, I run out of understanding, and I need the support of competent medical clinical people around me. Otherwise, the person is not holistically helped. Can you give us an idea maybe of perhaps when that happens? You know, when is it that you think, okay, I can now long, no longer mm. deal with this person in, in my pastoral sessions. I need to really be encouraging them to talk to someone. I think whenever you're presented with a, a, an individual case, the pastor's task is to firstly deal with the person as a whole. You deal with them as a as a whole person. So I'm looking body, soul, spirit. Let's deal with them holistically. Um, And you would instinctively take the principles of scripture and speak to them about renewing their mind and thinking like Christ and and all the stuff we know as a man thinks so he is. And you'd you'd take them down the spiritual development and discipleship route. Um, I remember one one chap that I uh, was doing that with, he was actually a student on the academy with me. And he seemed to be making reasonable progress. He clearly was a little bit up and down. But he suddenly went weird. And I had no idea why he went weird. One day he was hyper. The next he was down in the doldrums. And he had bipolar. But I didn't know. And to be honest, I didn't really know what, the, what, what it meant. Until his father came and said to me, Oh, we should have told you. He stopped taking his pills. <laughs> <clears throat> because someone had told him, You don't need your pills, trust God. So he put his pills in the bin come to class and over a period of days had quickly deteriorated. Things like that threw me into the books, threw me into research, threw me to to clinical support. Mm. And that brother is still around in the church with me today. And I still say to him from time to time, he's taking your medication. (laughs) (laughs) Because I know that when he does, he's he's right as a bobbin. Mm -hmm. And he's a blessing and he serves and he enriches people's lives. But I don't know whether he'll ever be completely free of it or not. Mm-hmm. I trust God, he can get free of it mm. at one level, but uh, in the meantime, he's better with it and growing and building a great family and doing what he does. 
How, how do you sort of deal with, um, I haven't prepared you for this question, so I'll sort of chip in, but you know, if, if you've got someone like that who you know is doing really, really well under medical treatment, and particularly in a church like this that comes from an Assemblies of God, Pentecostal background, and other people perhaps are saying, oh, you ought to stop taking your medication, or you ought to trust God. Have you been involved in having to have conversations with other people? Oh, yeah. We, we've said things from the front, and I wouldn't shy away from that. Uh, in, in trying to think, the big thing about um, church is that church has a culture, church has an ethos, and you have to understand what your culture is. And maybe part of our journey currently is understanding what is our church cultural attitude towards mental health issues, and that's why many of us are here today. Uh, but we would have no hesitation in saying to people, whatever you do, don't go advising anyone to stop taking the medication. Mm-hmm. You just don't do it. Uh, we want that as part of our culture. Uh, we'd be saying that to our pastoral teams, to our counsellors, but we'd also throw it in during a sermon as well. Mm. And tell us a little bit about that. I mean, Abundant Life here, how many people through the door roughly on a Sunday? Uh, 2,000. About 2,000 plus. And this auditorium, I mean, you know, takes well over 1,000 people. Yeah. How do you go about doing pastoral care, counselling in a, in a church of this size? Have you had to change models from perhaps how smaller churches do it? Tell us the story of what you've done. Yeah. Um, we've had to evolve as the years have gone by. I can remember getting beyond the point where I knew everybody looking out across the congregation and thinking, I don't know half the people in this room and they're supposed to be my flock. Uh, what do I do about that? And you, you, you know, today we have a, a pastoral team. We call it our pastoral hub. That's a team of eight of us who would see ourselves as being primarily responsible for the pastoral welfare of the church. Um, we then have reporting structures and meetings which, which pick up pastoral issues from two directions. I have a series of pastors, most of whom are employed on the staff of the church, who look across the church um, sort of life stages. So a youth pastor, he looks across every meeting he's at, he's looking for the youth. Uh, people like Christine Chapman, who you met, who every service she comes to, she looks across, and all she's looking for is old people. She's looking for them. She's wired that way. She's like, so she's looking forward for that. I have a kids pastor that does the same. Um, people that are good with family and relationship counseling that are doing the same. So those sort of cross-church pastors I would call them well then more recently we've introduced a second sort of input which is what we call service pastors so we have a team of people who at every gathering say this was a church service there would be a couple who are the service pastor for those people who are here today they have a team of volunteers serving them who are scattered amongst the people and they are literally surfing the crowd They're just working blocks of seats, they're chatting to people, picking up good news and bad news, getting alongside people, spotting visitors, spotting people that put their hand up for salvation or for an appeal and just getting alongside. And once a week, all those people from both pastoral streams, if you like, feed things back to the hub. Every Tuesday morning, 9.30, we meet the eight of us and we have all these cards and emails and information. We sort through it and decide how we're going to follow it all up. That one needs a bunch of flowers. That one needs a phone call. That one needs a visit. Let's go pray for that one. And let's put a prayer request in for that one. And we sort of manage it centrally. So the, uh, my gift, if you like, or the gift to me, is a great team around me. There's no way anybody could pastor a church of this size on their own. It'd kill them. Mm. 
And a lot of it seems to be, you know, finding your smallness within the largeness. Absolutely. So a, and the smallness is, I mean, you've got small groups, but actually not everyone's in a small group. A lot of people are in ministry teams, such as the audiovisual team, the yeah. kids team. Yeah. How does the sort of pastoral counseling support set up work within them? Um, we encourage everybody to find smallness in the largeness. So we have life groups. I reckon we've maybe got 30% of the church attached to a small group that meets fortnightly uh, in a sort of traditional church small group setting. <clears throat> we then would say to all our ministry teams, whether it's the worship team, the choir, the band, um, the team that are reaching the red light girls, or the team that are doing youth or kids' church, to see that as small group. So have spiritual content, not just task. So the guys who are serving coffee, or say the hospitality teams, we don't want it just to be pure task. Mm-hmm. But let's get some camaraderie, let's get a team dynamic going, let's see if we can have pastoral support going on. Mm-hmm. Now, going back to culture, a strong part of our church culture is that you don't need the pastor. You need each other. Let's get body ministry going. Let's get a culture that says we're committed to one another, we'll be our brother's keeper, we'll submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And you know, the, I preached a message here only a few weeks ago making the point that we're all sheep under one shepherd, including me. We're all sheep, but actually, we're also all, sh- all shepherds. Because where is the good shepherd today? Oh, he's in heaven. Well, by his Holy Spirit, he's in my heart and he's in your heart. So actually, at one level, if you want to go really basic, there's, there's the spirit of the great shepherd in every heart. So there's something in you that wants to nurture, wants to gather people. You know, Jesus looked out and he saw them uh, the crowds, and he says they were harassed and helpless like sheep without the shepherd. I think when we look across the room and see someone harassed and helpless, it's the spirit of the great shepherd in us saying, come on, bring them in, reach them. And Jesus taught them out of that ethic, and he, he drew them into his arms and made them part of his kingdom, and I love it. So, you know, that whole process inevitably means I get a lot of information in the pastoral hub, for example, some of those individuals we are not competent to deal with. So some, I've got a growing list of referral points, one of which is Ari and the Mercy team. Um, we've got some great ministries based in the church here, like Walking Free and John Edwards, who, we, who are very supportive and we can pass people on to. Um, when you were here, I used to pass people on to you, Rob. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's about having the good people around to support oh, you. Steve, that's really helpful just to hear. That's a big hand of applause for Stephen Matthew. Thank you. Okay, well, now is the time where we are going to do some um, panel and discussion. And if we can have up, I think John and Mike are going to come back, and Will and Jonathan, wherever they are, and um, get those guys up on the chairs at the end. If we can just do a quick stage change and just push this sofa back if we can. There we go. So please be thinking about questions. While you're thinking, I have got somewhere a question that someone's asked, which I'm going to ask the panel. Um, We've got Ray with the roving microphone just down at the front here. So this is your chance to ask all those questions that you've been saving up over the course of the day. um, Who are we missing? That's everyone. John, do you want to come and join us? Come and join us, John. Why not? Why not? I can't remember who I remember. We've got a spare chair. So many Johns, and you've got the mic. <laughs> right, let's kick us off, because I'm just going to decipher the handwriting. Let's kick us off with a question from the crowd. Any question from the day? Who's got one? Just there. 
Um, I have a friend who has had plenty of um, contact with the church in the past, but um, suffered a breakdown a few years ago where he was believing that he was God and or Jesus at various points in time. Uh, So my question is, how now can he relate to the Christian faith and after, especially after encountering these things, and are there any elements of advice I can give that might help him to get his head around relating to God, etc.? Wonderful. And he wasn't a Christian, he just had these experiences? Yeah. Right. Wow. Okay. Will, Will go on. Will. <laughs> Don't be shy. Well, let me think about this for just a moment. You know, the one thing I can say to you is that I believe that God knows who we really are. And if we're, in a sense, we're all deluded. You know, we all, we all think too highly of ourselves. And um, many of us have struggled with our identity because our identity has been marred in sin. And so, as much as he might have very concrete delusions about being God or being Jesus, we ourselves have great delusions of grandeur where we elevate ourselves above the place that we really ought. And so... Only really through relationship with Christ can we know who we really are. And so my encouragement to him would really be to actually be investigating who he really is and maybe the possibility that, that he, like us all, shares a sense of delusion which can only be undone by actually encountering God for himself. You know, only can we know who we are when we know who he is. And so my encouragement really for everyone is to, is to encounter God and find out who they really are. Sorry, that might sound a bit simplistic. I, th- I think one of the interesting things, I'm going to chip in as chair, sorry. Um, there's a huge history of madness and the divine. Um, if you go back over the years, the, 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 the person who probably today would have been told they had schizophrenia was actually the wise hermit on the hill who because of their psychosis was deemed to be in touch with God. There's people like Julian of Norwich and some of the church fathers that you can read who are probably ill today, but seem to have this thin bridge between their minds and the mind of God. And we've got so much to learn from that. And I I think, you know, hopefully as long as the person is not doing themselves long-lasting damage by perhaps acting on their delusions in other ways, let's hear, let's learn. Um, I get all kinds of phone calls, emails, I know Will does as well, from what you might call famous Christians, names that you would know. And a lot of the time, it's, I have this stuff, and I can't talk about it, but it really, really, really helps me in my songwriting, my preaching, all that kind of stuff. So let's bring on the connection between creativity and and mental health problems, because I think it's there. Cool. Okay, I've deciphered this question now. Okay, how best to deal with a situation in which you are concerned that a minister may be suffering from mental illness, i.e. burnout, and keeping it to themselves, or may not even be aware of it, and I guess in the small print, and hence impacting the church that is their flock? How would you deal with that? Um, Well, I I try and uh, obviously have a quiet word um, with a minister concerned, and... um, I'd um, remind him that, you know, stress and burnout is not all common in the, in the ministry, and it goes hand in hand with that role. Um, and being a, a vicar or a, a mental health worker is no armour to developing mental health problems yourself. Um, in fact, the research shows that people who work with people with mental health problems have got a higher risk of developing mental health problems themselves than people who don't 
work with mental health problems. So it's, it's part and parcel of being human. Um, and vicars are not immune to that like anybody else. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's helping them to see that and support them with that, helping them to get the appropriate professional care that they need. And I mean, that applies to any one of us across the board. So I think that's how I would, uh, I would uh, tackle that. Um, there's a, a website called uh, Fried Social Worker, <laughs> dealing with burnout in social work. And one of the links off that website is a wonderful uh, article on stress and burnout in the ministry. Really helpful. Um, and I've, I've actually passed that on to um, a number of vicars in the past, and they've all said how helpful and useful that's been, and how they've been able to relate directly to it. Yeah. Someone from the four chairs along there, John? Yeah, I, mm. I mean, first of all, I agree with my old mate Mike. Um, have a quiet word. I think also, depending on how your particular church is structured, there will be some kind of authority structure within the church. I mean, I'm a Quaker, and we, we have almost no hierarchy, but nevertheless, we have... Uh, even in a small Quaker meeting like ours, we have people who we call overseers. Um, and I guess my approach would be, first of all, do something. If you're concerned about somebody, you care about them, don't just step over it. Do something. Um, first thing, as Mike says, is perhaps, in most cases, perhaps not always, a quiet word with the person concerned. And if you're not making progress in that way, then that's the time to involve other people. Who those other people will be will depend very much on the structure of your own particular church. And, of course, um, however you do it, and we all do it in different ways, pray. And, again, perhaps another thing, if you're not sure how to approach it, have a chat with somebody who might know. Wonderful. Another question. Right in the middle at the back. Could you say something about um, uh, spiritual oppression and how you apply that to mental health? You know, praying for people for deliverance from oppression, spiritual, demonic oppression. Sure. Sure. Um, something I think I, I brushed on this in one of the last questions in my seminar earlier on. Um, I, think, I think sadly it's, we, people have m- maybe categorised people with mental health issues as um, potentially suffering from demonic oppression or influence because they've got a mental health issue. I I see it like this. We're all human beings. Therefore, we all have the propensity to suffer from spiritual oppression of one kind or another. Whether you've got cancer and you've got also spiritual oppression of one kind or another, whether you've got schizophrenia and you've got spiritual oppression of one kind or another, being someone who's suffering from a mental health issue does not mean that somehow you're in a category of people who can suffer from demonic oppression whereas everyone else can't and so I think the key thing we need to separate out is the difference between viewing someone as a a category and saying oh well someone who has a mental health issue therefore they must also be under some sort of spiritual influence and saying these people are all humans therefore they can all suffer from spiritual oppression the bible is absolutely clear it's not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers that we fight therefore we need to be very careful that we're not categorizing people who are suffering from mental health issues and saying, oh, because they're suffering from mental health issues, they must also uh, concurrently be suffering from some sort of demonic oppression. 
We have to see the person and see the illness and then see that as something that can or could be happening but isn't necessarily happening. And that's so frustrating as for many people who are suffering from uh, severe and long-term mental distress that somehow they must also um, have let some secret sin into their life or, um, or their demons in, in their mind. I'm not saying there aren't, but I'm saying don't make the link that because they're suffering in that way, they definitely are. Hmm. What would you say, Rob, in your experience clinically? Yeah. Well, I, I was actually going to ask Ari to chip in if I could, because I know that the counselling model you use at ministry is a multifactorial model. So, yes, you are dealing with thoughts and emotions and behaviours, but you also deal with evil and demonic oppression, I think it was called in the first version of the model you used. And tell us a bit about that model and what happens when someone really wants to major on one area, you know, which can be problematic. Well, um, there have been some changes in the model recently, actually, this year, in fact, uh, to really take the focus off what the enemy is doing and allowing people to kind of name demons that have caused them to be this, that, and the other and really focus much more on the believer's authority because the Bible's very clear that in the name of Jesus, we have authority over every power and principality, no matter what issues we've come into the home with, girl might have... Um, manifested with the, the, the name of Jesus is above all of that and it's, it's not our job to um, deal with demons uh, it's our job to educate the girls, the residents at Mercy Ministries in how to exercise their authority as a believer and, and to that end we encourage them in their relationship with God and the more intimate and strong their relationship with God is, the more able they are to live a life that is, that is under the control of the Holy Spirit and nothing else. Um, and, and that really is the focus of that part of the counselling model, is it's very much, um, and this is a recent thing, so, so some of the, the older teaching that perhaps Nancy Alcon had um, historically was much more focused on, on demonic oppression, as it was called. But that, that is a major change that has been made globally. Uh, and really, in this country, we were never there anyway. Mm-hmm. I think culturally mm-hmm. here, um, it's something that we've been very careful about how it's presented. And we don't want people coming with the mentality that it's all a demon's fault, um, because it's not. You know, Very often, it's just about exercising our authority as a believer. Okay. So that's our stance on it. I just wanted to come back on that because many, many years ago when I was a young doctor uh, and was going to a, um, a charismatic church, uh, we had a young lady in our church who probably would have come to your ministry these days, um, and the pastor thought she might be demon-possessed, and I was horrified. Um, I, I knew this lady quite well. I actually took her off to see an Anglican expert in demon possession who spent an hour with her. I wasn't in the room. She came out delivered, not from the demon, but from the fear of being demon-possessed, which was, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it made a very, very big difference in her life. And just another very quick take on that. I think we do far... Uh, when we use this kind of medieval idea of demons with little tails running around possessing people, we don't actually do justice to the theology, which I'm not qualified to do justice to, but there's an American liberal theologian called Walter Wink who actually talks about um, these principalities and powers as being uh, institutions that are actually not fulfilling their true purpose. So you could say that some of the banks have been demon-possessed recently. If yes. you want to take that down. Jonathan. Yep. Yeah. Having worked in mental health 
as a professional, but also been involved in the deliverance ministry and healing ministry, um, I've actually really very much had to, had to travel a path where in many ways people would say, actually, the two are not compatible. The answer is, yes, they are. There is a need for the deliverance ministry today. Demons do still exist. There is still something called demonization or oppression. And it does happen. And at times, there is a need for deliverance. But at times, I would also have to say to you, I'd be saying to a person, you need to take your medication for schizophrenia, for depression, for this, for that. So for me, it's looking at the person, what is the person's need, what's causing the problem, what's best for that particular person. If someone is suffering from a condition caused by demonization, they need deliverance. If they are suffering from a condition which is actually a health condition, they need treatment or prayer for healing. You cannot heal a demon, nor can you cast out an illness. Helpful, Jonathan. Thank you. Yeah, just in the middle, just over there. Just going to say a word about Ray, our runner. Did people see the DVD over lunchtime about the artwork and Ray's story? That was Ray in the background, filmed on his landing, shown in the Tate Gallery at times. But if you want to find out more about Ray and his art and his journey, which is an amazing journey, transformation, grab him later when he's not running around. Okay, yeah. Okay. Hi. Um, I just wanted to find out the correlation between hypnosis um, as... As a form of therapy to bring out repressed memories for people who um, are dealing with repression through childhood incidents. Right. Wow. Anybody want to answer a question on hypnosis? I think you should answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Two things about hypnosis. First of all, the difference between stage hypnosis and clinical hypnosis. Stage hypnosis and Devin Brown and that kind of thing is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is clinical hypnosis. There's a national association of clinical hypnosis, and if you're going to see a hypnotist, you should be seeking someone who's a member of that and has been trained in that to diploma level. Um, Personally, I would put hypnosis in the same group as the other range of alternative therapies. And I, as a Christian, would say I don't have a problem with alternative therapies as a whole. I do have a problem with perhaps some of the Eastern philosophies behind them, but things like aromatherapy, acupuncture, that, um, hip, clinical hypnosis, I personally don't have a problem with. I'm aware that not all Christians would agree with that. So clinical hypnosis is about enabling somebody to get into a position where they can do thinking about perhaps what they couldn't think about before. And if someone's been abused, they are likely to have such trauma and such fear of talking about it that they, they can't process it. And Sigmund Freud said, unless you can remember something, you can't forget it. And I think a lot of people who've been abused and been traumatized will say things like, I can't get it out of my head. But actually what's going on is they can't get it into their head and not panic or have a, 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 a self-harm or something. They can't get it into their head for long enough to think about it, to forget it, to get it out of their head. Does, does that make sense? So if clinical, clinical hypnosis helps you deal with the trauma, whereas previously you couldn't deal with it, I think that's brilliant. Um, the whole issue of repressed memories and whether or not hypnosis brings about memories that weren't actually there... 
it's an absolute minefield. I think what I'd say is you have to test those out in session on the basis of a skilled hypnotist and a good clinical formulation. And you should be able to go some way towards telling apart a false memory and a true memory, not really the stuff of court cases and trying to take people to trial on that. You won't get very far in the British legal climate. Can I say as well, in terms of minor soul, what we're really trying to do here is to bring together the best clinical practice and strong orthodox Christian theology. And so I just want to encourage you all as practitioners and theologians and pastors and teachers that, that, that these are some of the grey areas that are hard for us to understand and that we need to dialogue over. So we haven't got all the answers as we journey on this journey together, but understanding what might be appropriate for Christians and what might not is something that we're working on and working at. And you're all a part of that as you bring your feedback and as we explore what that means. I mean, I haven't thought about hypnosis yet and I haven't got a theology <laughs> for hypnosis and whether or not I think it's 100%. I'm not going to have an argument with him in the car on the way back home about whether I think that's okay or not. But, but I want to say, you know, it's, it's in this gritty exploration that we're doing what we're doing and I think that's a good thing. So we can actually say, yes, I think this is okay or I'm actually not sure about this. And in everything, we're bringing together that, you know, that, that sense that, that it's Christ first, the hope of glory. That's what we're coming at first and foremost. And then we approach everything from that position. We can have an argument now if you want. Okay. Or we can let Jonathan chip in. I'll let Jonathan have an argument instead. <laughs> I, must, I actually disagree with Rob on this. And it's one of those things where it just shows that even within the three people who head up Mind and Soul, there are times where we actually will disagree. But we're actually working together to actually get people talking and to share ideas. Um, I actually have great concerns about hypnosis, even clinical hypnosis, because you're actually yielding control to the person who's guiding you. So I have concerns, but there is actually some aspects of prayer ministry which can do just as much in actually helping that person bring out the, um, the emotions and stuff that's being held down. So I've actually seen prayer ministry sort of teaching which will actually help do in many ways the equivalent of hypnosis um so for me i wouldn't recommend hypnosis but i would actually say how about as a christian going for this or that type of prayer ministry we come from a different approach and it's where at times we have to agree to differ but actually we are working together knowing that times will differ john's got a fourth perspective i just can't resist getting in on this one either <laughs> I, I, i've never used hypnosis i have no special knowledge about hypnosis but the key thing to me is whether something is being used abusively or not god in my experience is never coercive god invites us uh, you know god attracts us to himself he doesn't force us to go down a particular path. In fact, if God was prepared to force us, the incarnation of Jesus would not have been necessary. Amen. Just have had our free will taken away. Um, so, to me, it doesn't matter. You know, if you get over-enthusiastic ministers who think everybody's demon-possessed if they've got a problem, that is abusive. If you get people who use hypnosis abusively, mm. that is abusive. Mm -hmm. If you get people who call themselves counsellors and not properly trained and are abusive, that is abusive. None of that has anything to do with God. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the criterion. Is it, is it abusive? Now, I'm not particularly supporting hypnosis because I know very little about it. I have a colleague who uses it, and I think quite successfully, but uh, 
I, I have no strong view either way on hypnosis itself. I'm, I'm going to call it a day there because I think we could discuss it all day if we're not, if we're not careful. Is there another question out there? There's, Ray's got one just there. Yeah. Hi. Um, um, I'm a full-time carer for my wife who's got mental health problems. Um, we've got a three-year-old daughter. Um, my wife had preeclampsia and she was six weeks early with my daughter who's three and a half now. Um, basically, since she was born, we've had endless amounts of people in our house checking out what we're doing how we're doing and sometimes that was helpful but four weeks after she was born there was up to 12 people in our living room for six, six, six days a week and it just became to the point where we were saying behind their backs go away leave us alone to live our lives I can understand the support was there but the question I'm asking is, if my wife didn't have mental health problems, would we have all these people in our house giving us, I don't know, help, but a hindrance at the same time? Because my wife has mental health problems, we seem to have lots of people who are just there to help us. And it might sound like that's a good thing, mm. but when you need some peace and you need to do it your way, you know, how would that have happened if my wife hadn't had mental health problems? Would we have all these people Jonathan, do you in want our to, house? Would we chip back into that as a social worker and someone who um, has been involved in those kind of discussions? It, it's very difficult to know exactly who's involved and what their roles were. But I suspect that it may well be the case that actually you wouldn't have had anything like so many people involved. And what I hear more often is actually there aren't enough people involved in giving support. And you can actually go from one extreme to the other. I think at times where a concern is raised, you then actually have that trigger, someone else involved and someone else involved and someone else involved. And so you end up having the, the, the care plan and you actually have to have that checklist of... Um, have we actually covered this and that and that? And you end up with so many people involved. To be perfectly honest, um, I know it must seem incredibly annoying when you actually just wish you could be left to look after um, your young child and to actually have a family without all this interference. But I suspect there's probably more people out there thinking, I wish I got some help, but no one's giving me help because actually no one's taking notice of my need. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, at times it can be too much on one side or too much on the other. And knowing a lot of the people that contact us, they're crying out for help and people are ignoring their cry, saying, please, we need some input. Um, it does feel to me as if that's an overkill, too much input. Um, so... Do, do you Mike? think there's something in there that perhaps, you know, you didn't feel able to say no? And, you know, if you'd broken your leg and 12 people turned up, you could say, actually, I can walk fine by myself, go away. But because it's a mental health problem, you, you feel that you can't say no to these people and it's going to be enforced on you in some shape right. or form. Uh, my, my concern with that is that it's actually involving a mental health problem and a child. Mm. And yes. it wouldn't surprise me if what's happened is that it's triggered mm. lots of issues. Yeah. 
and it's not just the mental health it's, mm. it's uh, other things as well that would be my suspicion but it can seem like that to the person sometimes yeah, yeah. well yeah you okay. feel, obviously I, I think I'd feel completely overwhelmed I mean my idea of Al having 12 mental health workers in my house <laughs> I mean, it really is excessive isn't it I mean it's about working with people in partnership um, yeah obviously safeguarding making sure you know all areas of uh, that person's life is being looked at and the childcare needs the mental health needs but it's about working sensibly with people and uh, as I say often unfortunately there's not enough people involved quite frankly uh, many instances it's very difficult to get uh, people engage with mental health services. I've only been involved just this last week with somebody in, in my church who's uh, really quite psychotic and the problems I've had trying to get them engaged with mental health services and police action that should have been taken has been ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's often the other side of the spectrum that people suffer from. Um, but like with, with everything, it's got to be balance and partnership with people, yeah. Okay. Another question. Where's the mic? Got to, yes, just right in the middle. Oh, just in front there, just to your left, Ray. Lady with a question. Behind you. I just thought it'd be good to give someone else a chance because you asked a question this morning. Oh, sorry, yes. Well, a lady so just here then, knows someone. You choose. Hi. Mine is not a, really a question, it's like a suggestion. I'm sorry I'm not a good um, speaker, but. I still want to say something. Um, I believe we shouldn't look the fact. I mean, we shouldn't. We should also look the fact that man is not just man, but it's also a spirit. Hence, for us to give, I mean, a holistic service or care to our service users, we should incorporate the spiritual models as well as the medical and the biological. Not looking the fact that we should not also impose our faith onto our service users. Um, a couple of years ago, I think about nine, 2003, when I was doing my training as a student nurse, uh, I had the opportunity to nurse a patient who fortunately came from, we were working from the same background. And he was suffering from depression with psychotic episodes. He lost himself up in the room. He wouldn't eat, that's nothing, and occasionally have suicidal ideation. Um, one afternoon during the world round, I meet the parents. And that same time, uh, there was a program in London about healing and uh, something going on. And I suggested to the parents that it would be a good uh, idea if they could go for this program, healing and anointing service, and then stand in the gap for their son. Maybe it might work. Uh, they did go, uh, I think, Thursday, Friday. And Sunday, I didn't meet up with them and went for this program. We prayed together, believing God. At the same time, that same Friday, the child had, the son had a opportunity to have a, a weekend leave. So they all came together on Sunday. Now, when he returned on Monday morning, it was so amazing. A total transformation. A total healing. Miracle. This same person was able to come out speaking, engaging, I mean, even like speaking on behalf of other uh, service users. Now, when we come to the world round on Tuesday morning, I have to warn the parents, never say in the world round that I encourage you to go to such a program. (laughs) If Jesus had done this amazing thing in his life, 
Why shouldn't I be bold enough, hold my head half eye, and say, Jesus did this for him? Well, Jesus probably would. But because of mm-hmm. political correctness, mm-hmm. I was so scared, and up to today, that guilt is still on me that I have failed to promote or to project Jesus where he was extremely important. So I believe if our um, authorities, our professional governing bodies also come to such meetings like this, it might help change the way they think about our policies and we can bring such things into our system. Thank you. Yes, thank you. I, I, I guess one answer to that is that Jesus probably would have gotten an ASBO if he'd done that. And uh, that's the risk that you face when, when, when you act like Jesus is, is that you might get an aspo. But perhaps I could just interpret that slightly and ask the panel a question, which is often when we're talking about, you know, we have this amazing God and this amazing faith, but often we want to encourage people to take a steady journey. Have there been times when you've actually wanted to grasp the bull by the horns and said, yes, let's, let's go for this. Let's, let's really just dive in here with, with faith. And Let's go for an, an event, if you like, or at other times where you said, well, actually, we're wanting to sort of take things steady one step at a time. How do you, how do you get that balance right? Because we do believe in amazing miracles. We also believe in discipleship and journey. You know, I think one of the key things here is, I mean, I'm a charismatic vicar, and I believe in instant healing. And I've seen instant healing, physical and emotional. But what I always say with healing, physical or emotional or mental is that it can take an instant to be healed, but it can take a lifetime to understand your healing. And actually, in that moment of transformation, working out your healing and being able to dialogue about your healing and testify, which is what Jesus is calling us to do, about our healing is a lifelong journey. And you think about Legion, who was set free from many demons. We talked about demons earlier on. And, uh, and, and the first thing he wants to do is follow Jesus. And then, and, and then he, you know, even though Jesus said to him, you know, you know, be quiet, this is a messianic secret, if there is one. Um, you know, if, if that's what it was, you know, to keep, keep this quiet, this is, this is, you know, this is what I want you to do. He goes away, can't stop himself from talking about it. Now, if you think about Legion, when Legion was like 65, sitting by the lake in Galilee, he was still telling everyone, you know, oh, I used to be uh, locked up by the graves and, you know, Jesus cast all these demons out of me, and now I'm free. Like, our life is a life of testimony. And so if someone's set free from a mental health issue, they can be set free in a moment. But their life is always affected by the healing. And that journey is an important journey of dialogue and acceptance. And one of the things that stops us from being healed long-term from depression and anxiety and other illnesses is actually then saying, you know what, nothing ever happened to me. I'm going to keep this a secret. It's secrecy which damages us as much as anything else. It's not testifying that damages us. And actually, that's where we need to reduce shame and stigma because then we can be real and journey out with others and see the healing that might have happened in a moment last and permeate through the rest of our lives together and affect the lives of others. Great. Well, as I've said, I've, I've been involved in the healing ministry, the deliverance ministry, and I've seen dramatic changes in people. Dramatic healings, I've seen dramatic deliverances. On the other hand, I've worked as a mental health professional. I've worked in particular roles where you actually have incredibly strict boundaries. And when I've actually signed up to do those roles, I've stuck very closely with those boundaries. You actually have to stay faithful to what you're promising your employer. And so for me, I've actually had all sorts of conflicts over the years. But one of the times when I actually look back and think, 
in the role where I actually had the strictest boundaries, where I would not tell my clients that I was a Christian, where actually, it, you, know, my, you know, I actually had to separate my faith almost from my role in that particular uh, setting. I actually also look back and think that I ended up taking the funeral of one of my clients who had died from con- the sort of consequence of, of, of an addictive behavior. And the way I ended up coming to take his funeral was because after he died, his mother was talking to one of the nursing staff. And the, nurse, and the mother was saying, look, what do we do regarding his funeral? Because they weren't a Christian family. They had no church links whatsoever. And she was in this distressed state. And one of the nursing staff who actually somehow had come to know that I was a Christian through you know, the, the staff network I had, said to her, do you realize that Jonathan is a minister? And she was, I don't think she was surprised, but she was at that point thinking, yes. And then she approached me to take her son's funeral. At which point... I was being asked by the mother to take the funeral of my former clients. And that was quite an interesting change. But certainly for me, I hadn't actually told her that I was a minister, but actually because staff colleagues told her, I ended up taking the funeral. Mm -hmm. But in that particular setting, it would not have been appropriate to actually have shared my faith with the individuals who are my clients because it the boundaries were quite specific and quite important mm-hmm. to keep. I just want to say a word um, for the atheists because Mike worked with me when he was an atheist and I currently work with the Director of Mental Health Services who, who testifies very strongly that he's an atheist but he's actually a very spiritual man and he's doing a great deal of good and I'm hoping that eventually he will actually see the light and I think sometimes you know, we can't do everything we want to do at a particular point in time. I agree with what you said as well, and it goes together with the principles in managing crisis. You know, you, you have to stick by the procedures of your employment, which is why, as a psychiatrist, I was always very cautious about sharing my faith and only would do it with people who, if you like, already were indicating to me that they had a corresponding faith mm-hmm. or a faith that I could speak to in some way. Mm. Harry, you going to chip in? One of the benefits, obviously, of Mercy Ministries is that we're a faith-based organization, so the, the girls coming to us know the condition on which they're going to experience their healing, and it's going to be through a Christ-centered program, uh, which is a great freedom for us to have, and it's, and it's the reason why we have such a high success rate. Apart from the fact that, you know, what you were saying about process or event, we have the privilege of seeing small events every day which actually add to a process. And we teach the girls the importance of lifelong tools because mercy isn't just something that happens as an event in their life. The whole point of it is that they learn that the rest of their life is going to be a process of putting into practice the tools they learn. So renewing the mind, what does that actually mean and what does it look like and how is it going to help you in your journey of transformation? And, and those are the kinds of tools the girls come away with. And that, that's why we have long-term success, uh, because they are equipped to be able to carry on the process of healing throughout the rest of their lives, like all of us, really. Wonderful. I think, actually, if it's all, I'm just going to just 
close it there if that's all right. I think we're just going to have, we could go on and take questions forever and that kind of thing. But it's, it's after five. We need to close. Can we just join me in giving a big round of applause to our panel? Thank you very much. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Mike. I need to... no. Jonathan's going to close. And we're going to... I've been asked by a number of people where things are going from here. Are we going to have a London conference? The answer is yes, but the exact date is not yet decided.